0: Welcome to Eye on the Triangle with Sesha Hindi, a weekly glimpse into our community, bringing you news from the brickyard to your backyard.
1: A massive earthquake strikes Chile, North Carolina contemplates the future of its alcoholic beverage control system, and the 21st Winter Olympics draw to a close. I'm William Lampe. These stories and more on Eye on the Triangle.
2: This weekend news on Eye on the Triangle.
3: A brief rundown of the latest news. From the Glass-Enclosed Nerve Center here at WKNC News, I'm Evan Garris. Your news time is 7.02. John Boyer has the night off. Early on Saturday morning, a massive 8.8 magnitude earthquake emanated from beneath the Pacific Ocean, 200 miles from the Chilean capital of Santiago. The death toll now stands at 723, according to the Associated Press. Rescue crews are still being are still searching, rather, for those buried under collapsed buildings. Michelle Bachelet, the president of Chile, said the quake was an emergency without parallel in Chile's history. In Concepcion, power is without er, power is out, and water is difficult to find as night falls. Police and Chilean troops are struggling to fend off looters. Scientists became concerned that a destructive tsunami could spread out to New Zealand, Japan, Alaska, and everywhere in between. Hawaiian and Japanese officials organized a successful evacuation of coastal zones, but the resulting tsunami was only in the two- to three-foot range. In the face of public scrutiny, scientists insist that the location and strength of the earthquake was nearly identical to the one in 1960 that killed 61 people. Some of the few reports of damage came from Ventura, California, where a navigation buoy and several boats were damaged.
1: Al Jazeera is reporting that former Bosnian Serb leader Radovan Karadzic appeared in the International Criminal Court today in The Hague, ending this month's long boycott of the trial. Karadzic is accused of spearheading an ethnic cleansing campaign during the Bosnian war that killed 100,000 and displaced more than 2 million. He told judges today that his actions were just and holy, that he had good evidence and proof to substantiate his claim. Karadzic faces 11 counts of genocide, war crimes, and crimes against humanity.
3: The United States Supreme Court has decided not to hear a case involving seven Chinese Uyghurs held at Guantanamo Bay since their capture in 2001, according to the BBC. The case would have implications as to whether or not prisoners would be released released in the United States. Switzerland has offered to resettle two and the Pacific island of Palau 5. These offers led to the Supreme Court's decision. All charges against the men have been dropped.
1: The Telegraph reports that Apple has admitted to using child labor in several of its facilities that manufacture iPods. Eleven 15-year-old children were discovered working in three undisclosed factories, though most of Apple's components are manufactured in China. The company says that the underage workers are no longer being employed. Apple has frequently been accused of treating its workers poorly, where labor laws are not
3: strictly enforced. The 21st Winter Olympic Games came to a thrilling close last night in Vancouver. Team USA dominated the overall medal standings at 37. Canada, meanwhile, had the most gold medals of any country, 14. Just hours before the closing ceremony, the men's hockey finals saw the U.S. and Canada tied 2-2 two two with seconds remaining in regulation. Sidney Crosby of the Pittsburgh Penguins became an instant Canadian hero by scoring the game-winning goal in overtime. Canada took the gold for the eighth time in Olympic history. The U.S. men wound up with silver, their eighth silver finish. Hmm. According to NBC, 190 million tuned in for the events, making it the second most watched Winter Games in history. Sochi, Russia, is the next li- is next in line rather for the 2014 Winter Games.
1: The wreckage is now cleared after a terrible commute along I-40 in Cary just before 9 a.m. this morning. A chain reaction of wrecks in the westbound lanes near exit 284 caused five injuries. The resulting eight-mile backup shut down I-40 for two hours. WRAL reports that most of the drivers only sustained minor injuries, the one is still in surgery.
3: North Carolina has hired a private consulting firm to assess the worth of its alcoholic beverage control system. The state government is considering privatizing the system after recent ethics violations in Mecklenburg and New Hanover counties. Governor Perdue sent a letter to lawmakers today outlining her proposal, making it clear that if nothing else, more oversight is needed. Chairman of the Wake County Board of Alcohol Control, John Converse, said that there are about 160 local ABC boards statewide, but problems have only been found at two.
1: On this day... In 1961, John F. Kennedy established the Peace Corps. In 1963, I mean 1936, the completion of the Hoover Dam. With 1790, the first United States Census was authorized.
3: Birthday shout-outs go to Ron Howard, born this day in 1954, and in 1810, Frederick Chopin, a Polish pianist and composer. Weather this evening comes from Karly Kovac at the NCSU Broadcast Meteorology Program. Tonight, mostly cloudy, skies with with a low near 33. Tuesday, mostly cloudy, rain and showers begin by lunchtime. The high will be around 40. Tuesday night sees rain, which turns into snow showers overnight, accumulations breaking down like this. Only a dusting for areas north and west of the Triangle, including Burlington and Sanford, an inch at best for the Raleigh vicinity, mostly on grassy surfaces, likely going to be a disappointment for snow lovers. A few inches toward Rocky Mount and Smithfield and other areas along I-95.
1: Bottom line, don't waste your time with milk and bread. These snow totals are subject to change. To get the latest, check out twitter.com ncsuweather or search for the NCSU Broadcast Meteorology Program on Facebook and become a fan. With Wednesday, snow flurries during the morning, turning into a mostly cloudy day, the high in the lower 40s, Thursday, partly cloudy and slightly warmer, high in the upper 40s.
3: An early look at the weekend forecast suggests the temperatures ramping up into the upper 60s by Sunday and Monday, making for a lovely weekend. Ironically, today is the first day of the meteorological spring. Astronomical spring begins on March 20th. Currently, it's 48 degrees and cloudy here in Raleigh. The time is 7.08. Ion Lake Triangle continues next with sports.
4: You're listening to I on the Triangle on WKNC 88.1. I'm Seja Hindi. Next up, we have sports with Tommy Anderson and Tyler Everett.
5: What's going on, Tyler?
6: Not much. How you doing?
5: Pretty good, pretty good. Uh, So this weekend, or was it? Yeah, this weekend, uh, State took out um, Miami. Pretty good showing.
6: Yeah, Uh, strong comeback on the road for the basketball team. uh, Down nine in the second half. Came back to win it. Uh, Miami, I believe, shot one for seven over the last minute or two. So uh, the defense really clamped down and won it on that. Won it on that side of the court and some late free throws. Uh, I believe Gonzalez was 3-for-3 three three in about the last minute. Uh, sealed the deal for the Pac's second second ACC win in a row after, I believe it was seven in a ro- seven losses in a row. So good yeah. to be back on the winning track.
5: Yeah, good to be back on that side of the comeback, too. Um, yeah. Let's see. So Nice change.
6: Yeah, Tracy Smith,
5: one of our uh, mainstays all year, he is, I believe you said earlier, he is inked in to come back next year?
6: Uh, nothing set in stone. He would not be the first to say he's coming back and uh, disappoint everybody later, but uh if he's as good as his word then he will be back he did say that he will be and we can only hope that he meant it. he sounded uh sounded pretty uh pretty certain about it so we can we can certainly count on well not count on we can certainly hope and every reason to believe him
5: right so i mean being a state basketball fan over the years there's two words everyone always says is next year but um so let's talk about next year how's recruiting look
6: uh, a lot of times everybody talks next year and I kind of roll my eyes and say, wow, we're, we're fooling ourselves. But next year, whether we'll be great or not is a question. But the talent coming in is certainly, um, phenomenal. Might be a little bit of a stretch, but, uh, a whole lot of talent coming in. Both Ryan Harrow and Lorenzo Brown. Some people feel like, uh, Harrow might have more of an impact. Some would say Brown. But either way, both are extremely talented, uh, top 50 players in the nation at their position. Brown was supposed to be here this year and actually, uh, is at Hargrave for a year getting his grades right, but all signs are that he will be here in the fall, and so will Harrow for certain. And also Luke Cothran is another big recruit. Uh, Harrow and Brown are as big as anybody I can remember in the past 10 years, right up there with the caliber of a, a recruit, Julius Hodge, which a lot of people remember, right up there with the caliber of a recruit he was coming in. Right, great. So certainly
5: looking forward to that. Oh, so, so um, we'll switch over to women's basketball. Um, we beat, beat Georgia Tech this past week. Um, they were ranked number 22. So that wraps up the sixth seed in the ACC tournament, I believe. Um,
6: yeah, women's basketball finished finished their conference play, regular season conference play, but with a with a good run, won five out of seven after uh, after not getting off to a real good start early in conference play, but a five winning five out of seven down the stretch. ACC women's basketball is pretty tough, so to do that, a win over Carolina and then a win over a ranked Georgia Tech team on Senior Day was huge for those seniors who have had had quite a quite a four year period here at State with uh the passing of Coach Yao and um the coaching replacement and uh a final four run in there either the freshman or sophomore year. So they've kinda seen it all so it was good for them to get their last win in Reynolds like that.
5: Yeah, definitely good for Kelly Harper as well. Um definitely so baseball this weekend, uh state's looking good this year in terms of baseball.
6: So far so so darn good. Um a real good weekend this weekend went down to Myrtle Beach uh, had three games, two of which were against the number three and number six teams in the country. Friday, uh, the pack took on number three UC Irvine, and game went to extra innings. And Russell Wilson, the uh, football star, actually hit a f- what was said to be a four hundred foot walk off in extra innings, uh, two strikes, and then the third pitch he swung at, he nailed it, I believe four hundred feet out of left center. And then Saturday, a win over James Madison, and Sunday. Uh, first loss of the season for the baseball team to um to coastal carolina the number six team in the nation lost six three that game so never good to lose but six or seven and one is certainly a good start and especially with already a a huge win for the team's resume with with beating a team of the caliber of uh of irvine yeah it's looking real good so that's
5: all i got russell
6: wilson also got the close saturday which is kind of interesting people are going to start joking real quick if they haven't already been about what can't he do he gets a 400-foot walk-off on a Friday, and then comes in, seals up a save on Saturday, and he's already an all-ACC-type football player, so yep. pretty impressive. Jack of all trades. Yep. Gonna get me
5: down.
7: Free as the wind. Free as the wind.
0: Viewpoint on Eye on the Triangle.
4: Evan's opinions on the latest news.
3: Every so often, I'll find myself making the short trip home in what usually turns out to be an ill-feigned attempt at breaking the monotony of student life. I'm not so good at sitting still. Usually, a free meal is involved, so rule out total failure. My house contains untold troves of books, from great works of literature to droll throne room reads that would find better use as toilet paper. I'll browse the collection from time to time, braving clouds of dust and ensuing avalanches in hopes of finding a catchy title. This past weekend, I found a book by Dr. James Dobson entitled Bringing Up Boys. This one was too good to pass up. For those who aren't familiar, Dobson is the founder and former chairman of Focus on the Family and the Family Research Council. He's a contemporary of characters such as Pat Robertson and Jerry Falwell, May He Burn in Hell. This guy is a living definition of, fundan- of Christian fundamentalism. They don't come more conservative, Say, I, dare I say, unabashedly ignorant. As I pulled this book from the shelf and the initial expression of shock and horror ran from my face, how could this be in my house? I actually started to read this trash. Dr. Dobson certainly isn't known for his all-inclusiveness. His beliefs on the roles of women, schooling, corporal punishment, diversity, homosexuality, etc., are biblical, but only in the sense that they have more in common with the Bronze Age than 21st century America. According to Pious Old Jim, women should adhere to their biblically mandated roles as good mothers from within the home, he, he would also have you believe that tolerance and diversity are buzzwords for homosexual advocacy, and children should be spanked until they cry. In keeping with today's trend, Dobby takes biggest issue with, you guessed it, homosexuality. It's such a problem that an entire chapter of this book was devoted to it. Prefacing the chapter is a letter to Dr. Dobson, supposedly received by a young, t- or received written by a young teenager struggling with his sexual identity. This young man tells of how he's ashamed of who he is and how he desperately seeks to be normal, how he doesn't want to go to hell because he's different. The rest of the chapter builds on this testimony, and, of course, the rhetoric becomes increasingly charged. Dobson believes homosexuality to be a mental illness, contrary to the opinions of every single psychiatric and psychological association in the United States. According to this man, gay men and women are sick. They're deviants, flawed, less than human. Listeners, listen carefully. What this man teaches is absolutely despicable. My heart sank as I read this boy's letter and the filth accompanying it. This boy was reaching out for help because he believed something was wrong with him, that he was flawed. From his eyes and the eyes of society, not to mention James Dobson, being gay was not okay. What he needed was to be embraced, loved for who he is. Instead, he was exploited by a man believing him to be mentally ill and an abomination before God. So I pose this question. What in hell are we doing to each other? Let me be clear. There is nothing wrong with this boy, and there is nothing wrong with any gay man or woman under the sun. What's wrong is our refusal to understand that gay people are flesh and blood just like anyone else. The stigma we've created is what's unacceptable, and oh, did we create it. No God would be as so bold to say that one man is worth more than another because of who, is she, who he or she happens to love. Homosexuality is about as much of a choice as, as heterosexuality, but for some reason, we can't see the writing on the wall. For some reason, two men cannot share a loving relationship equal to that of a man and a woman. I guess it's just to become easier to fear what we don't know and hate what we refuse to understand. This has to stop, and it has to stop now. Because of our collective intolerance and short-sighted ignorance, thousands fall victims to hate crimes each year, coupled with thousands more, many children who take their own lives because being gay in this world is too much for them to handle. Where is the line drawn? When is enough enough? When do we stop enabling men like James Dobson? Lives are at stake in this fight for equality, precious lives that deserve the same love and respect awarded to someone who happened to be born straight. It's time for us to step up to the plate, folks, because I promise you that you know many more gay men and women than you realize. The time is now to shed this benighted slime that shrouds our judgment and transcend, those be- transcend the beliefs that people are flawed or are sinners because they're different. Readers, I challenge you to break down each and every last barrier to understanding. Embrace instead of reject, love instead of fear. People are counting on you.
4: The views in this editorial do not necessarily reflect the views of WKNC, Student Media, or NCSU.
3: This is for my people who want to take it to a whole other level that they never been to before. I said this is for my people who held me on their backs for so long. Everything I do is for my people. Let's celebrate the beauty of our people.
4: You're listening to Eye on the Triangle on WKNC 88.1. I'm Seja Hindi. Before we take a short break, we're... Going to, or sorry, when we get back from our break, we're going to take a look at the proposed history reforms in North Carolina on our VIP segment. We also have a preview of Ignite Rally on Community Canvas and our weekly Wolfpacker of the Week and Soundbite segments, so make sure to stay tuned. As always, if you want to give us feedback during the show, you can call us at 860 0881 or 515 2400. You can also tweet at WKNC EOT or send us a message at WKNC Requests.
2: You're listening to Eye on the Triangle on WKNC 88.1. Eye on the Triangle's VIP.
1: Talking to people that matter.
8: You're listening to VIP on Eye on the Triangle. I'm Michael Jones. A storm has been developing over the North Carolina public education curriculum. Every handful of years, the Department of Public Instruction reevaluates the way that the school system teaches its students. This year, there's been a large amount of pushback over one subject in particular, and that subject's history. Uh, Being a history major myself, I decided to look more into this issue by contacting two of the biggest names in the current debate. Professor Holly Brewer, who's been at North Carolina State for about 15 years. And I also sat down with the superintendent of the Department of Public Instruction, Ms. June Atkinson. Sitting down with both of them, we spoke of what's going to happen Um, why the debate is so passionate right now, and we discussed what the implications were for what was written in the first draft of this new proposal. I'm uh, currently sitting with uh, Professor Holly Brewer. Now, you've been working at North Carolina State for uh, about 15 years, you said?
7: Yes, and I teach early American history here, colonial and revolutionary American history.
8: And uh, you've you've worked on some books about the time period, haven't you?
7: I published one book called uh, By Birth or Consent, and... um, in early America and early modern England, which is about uh, what it means to be a child and an adult and how that changes with different ideas about political power.
8: Now, uh, so let's get right into things. We're not going to hesitate anymore. So on the website, realhistoryreform.org, it states... The real reason we are bringing this issue to public attention, instead of simply responding to the Department of Public Instruction's website, Mm -hmm. is that in the past, the department did not listen and did not respond to the concerns of history teachers whom they claim to have consulted. Now, uh, what do you know about the DPI's decision-making process, and on that note, would you even be uh, really addressing this issue with such passion if it weren't for the fact that um you you're making the statement that they didn't consult teachers.
7: Right. Uh that is crucial to why I am involved in this at all. Obviously as a professor I have other things to do than to care to <laughs> stick my nose into K through 12 education in the state. But the Department of Public Instruction in North Carolina has a reputation of being unresponsive to um, what their teachers to their teachers concerns and more to the point they are now staffed by people with degrees in social studies education not with history degrees who haven't taken very many history courses and I have no problem with people with degrees in social studies education teaching history in our schools and I they've been that's been the plan now for a long time but the problem is the that traditionally there isn't a lot of they haven't taken many history courses themselves so we now have people writing the history curriculum for the state who've taken almost no history classes in college and what they have done over time over the past 10 years is cut the amount of history being taught in our K through 12 classes again and again and again and they're very top down and they've just done it and they propose a plan and a draft, and then it becomes a final plan. And by the fall in 2003, after they cut U.S. history before 1789, it was policy. So they have a reputation of doing things really quickly and not listening. So this time, when they proposed to cut, uh, to make the U.S. history course only 1877 to the present, when they got rid of Um, world history and propose to make it instead world studies 1945 to the present when they change they've changed a lot of other courses in their quote-unquote draft we take it very seriously because we know the next draft might well be the final draft and there's the next time for input is six years from now so it's and once that's done it's it has a huge impact
8: now uh one of the counter arguments is that students they have the capacity of learning uh, specifically history at earlier stages in their academic career, like in middle school, so I believe, if I'm not mistaken, that they're planning on putting in uh, a lot of that pre-1877 history in some of those early classes. Now, uh, is this is this what they're hoping it'll do? Is provide something that's a bit more in depth than going over the one semester mm-hmm. class? Now, do you think that um, the current system is comprehensive enough? And do you think that if they did those changes? And made it to where students um before they were in the eleventh grade were taking those classes uh gave them a better opportunity to learn in a more comprehensive manner
7: right um that's you have a lot in that question, yeah, so let there me was. rephrase it. there's several parts to it, but one of them is are they gonna be cover- are these topics going to be covered adequately in earlier grades? Well, according to a recent study in North Carolina right now, because of the way history and social studies have been pushed and pushed to the side by by uh, the focus on testing, teaching to the test in English and literacy, students in elementary school are only getting 30 minutes of history or social studies per week. So if you move U.S. history to fifth grade, which is really where they've put it, the beginning part of U.S. In fact, they have a whole course in U.S. history that isn't mostly about the early parts. It has a lot on the later parts. But if you move it to fifth grade, and they get 30 minutes a week, I I don't really don't think that counts as having covered it in fifth grade. Plus, conceptually, in fifth grade, people aren't really ready to deal with difficult issues. I've given guest lectures in fifth grade classrooms. And you know what, you can't deal with some of the difficult issues about slavery, or even with some of the more difficult issues about the Civil War. There's only so much you can deal with appropriately on a fifth grade level. And there's only so far people can go. And the other class they propose to cover some U.S. history and is seventh grade, um, but if you look at the seventh grade <laughs> class they've proposed, it's state, nation, and world, 1600 to 1970, and the class begins with uh, the sit-ins in the 1960s, and um, and then goes backwards uh, in time, and and is, isn't chronologically focused, and covers a little bit of everything, but it's mostly um, North Carolina history, and it's not mostly the earlier period. And in fact, the whole program they put out was so ill thought out that they forgot to actually list slavery, the Civil War, and many other topics anywhere in the whole K-12 curriculum. They just forgot about it. Um, So I don't think it's being covered adequately in the earlier courses, and I don't think the whole way they're approaching this Pays enough respect to uh, history as a discipline. It's as though somehow, um, and maybe you're going to address this with your next next question. But as though somehow they're so influenced by this 21st century skills movement, which is sweeping, which is is a per- current popular academic fad, that they think if you just teach the skills, that you don't need to teach content. And I don't, I just don't think that's true.
8: So let's let's get a little into that discussion now. Why is I'm focusing on history significant in the 21st century, uh, a lot of the, or the, at least that seems to be a common discussion, at least right. on the Facebook group right. and uh, throughout this entire debate on the curriculum change.
7: Well, what their argument seems to be is that it isn't that relevant for the 21st century, that the Department of Public Instruction seems to think that the students only care about recent history. So Rebecca Garland, who's the chief academic officer at DPI, went on WRAL news with me about 2 weeks ago and her quote to the about why they want to make these changes is she said we need to teach what they see on television she said they need to understand what they see on television like 911 that's what we need to focus on and she seems to think that's also what the only thing that students can connect to and of course there needs to be some discussion of current events in the curriculum at different places but that doesn't substitute for what history provides what history provides above all is knowledge, is knowledge about the world and knowledge is power and knowledge of the whole scope of human history, of American history, of world history, gives people, gives um, people who are growing up and about to become part of a 21st century world, a sense of what motivates people, a sense of economic um, uh, rise and decline, um, and why 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 economic collapses might happen, and um, they gives it gives people a sense of why um, certain rights that are part of our constitution might be important and you can only I mean just to give a range of examples, you can only understand why habeas corpus, which is the right to know why you're imprisoned. Um, and not to be kept in prison without charges, why that's important if you understand how it was used under a monarchy before the American Revolution. When people could be thrown in prison by somebody who had claims to absolute power and not be told why they were put there and kept there, this is an incredible amount of power in terms of manipulating the whole population. And if you, if you haven't studied the history, you don't understand why that matters, and you don't care about protecting it. So history is important in many levels in terms of giving options to people, in terms of understanding the world, but also in terms of understanding what it means to be a citizen above all in this country.
8: One thing that you're hoping that would happen was they would extend the amount of history that was taught um, in high schools to two semesters. Now, if they did this, would there be any type of conflict with other core subjects that people may see as a... You know, more relevant, like your sciences and your maths mm-hmm. and some English in, in there as well,
7: right, actually, no, not at all, because part of the reason we're in such a bad state to begin with is that about seven years ago, the Department of Public Instruction decided that um one block semester would count as a as a year um for what course for what courses had been covered in a year, so a block semester is a slightly more minutes in a in a um day in a um class per day but only taught over a semester but it leads to a reduction in content hours of about of teaching time of about a third to a quarter depending on the school system and that decision cut the the time that was spent on history and any other course that could be taught in a block semester substantially but the the change was felt very acutely by history teachers especially since they 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 then had to cover US history in this semester right but so your larger question is, is it going to hurt other topics? Well, the, the net result of this change is in schools that follow the block semester program, by the time they're seniors, many students are only taking a 2-2 course load because they've met all the requirements. Because really what's happened is what they've had to take in high school has been cut so dramatically. So there's plenty of room to require one extra um, requirement for graduation um, for many people. It's not, it's not a trade off at all. It's, it's just a one. And in fact, what it does is it makes history and social studies more comparable to the other disciplines. So right now there's four, four courses in English required, four courses in math required, four courses in science required. So this would make it four courses in history and social studies required.
8: Do you believe that any of this is uh, more or less a response to an idea that they are just regurgitating some basic facts of history throughout a student's course load, instead of focusing on specific areas? Because I know that one of the things is the work itself is not so comprehensive when you're not in that AP type class. You're not focusing on every little era. You're kind of getting more of a broad you know, spectrum of what's happening. So would you say that this is more of a response to them wanting to focus on areas? Or would you say that it's more of a response of them trying to not regurgitate the same basic type of information over and over and over again?
7: I think that's a great question. And part of the concern in the long, you know, over the past 30 years is that history in history classes, you just learn some facts and dates. To me, when history is taught right, it is never just a series of facts and dates. It's learning about real people and real events.
8: And once again, that was Professor Holly Brewer of North Carolina State University. Very, very passionate about this entire subject. Yet again, for more information, you can check out the Facebook group, History Did Not Begin in 1877. So we thought it would only be proper, fair, and necessary to get a response from the Department of Public Instruction. So we went straight to the top and we contacted Superintendent June Atkinson. To get her take on this entire situation, uh, currently I am sitting with uh, Miss Jane Atkinson. Is what? It's June. June Atkinson. All right. Well, currently I'm sitting with Miss June Atkinson. Now you are the superintendent for DPI, if I'm not mistaken. Uh,
2: that's correct. I'm state superintendent of public instruction.
8: And so, uh, w- one of the things that's really been brought up recently are these changes in the history curriculum. Now, what um, led for these changes? Like right now, why why is this happening now?
2: Well, the Department of Public Instruction uh, develops a standard course of study for every single subject and grade that we have in public schools, and we have a process in place that when we revise text, I mean when we revise our curriculum, we go through multiple drafts. So it was time for the social studies curriculum to be revised, and as we revise the curriculum, we bring teachers and professors and business people together to tell us what is good about the current curriculum, what needs to be changed. And, and so we brought together a writing team of teachers and professors to look at the social studies curriculum, kindergarten through grade 12, and to make recommendations for changes. Uh, the process goes this way. The writing team makes suggestions for change. That would be one, uh, 1.0 draft. And to give our teachers first opportunity to review the curriculum, we send it to a representative of all the school districts in the state, and we ask them to give us feedback about the curriculum. Typically, we have four drafts uh, before we get a final copy. And what has happened over the last two months is that we sent the first draft to our teachers for input.
8: Now, uh, were the teachers actively participating with writing the drafts, or was it just more of a revisionist type of perspective?
2: No, the, uh, the teachers in the classroom were those that were a part of writing the first draft. Uh, we had some guiding principles for the writing team to uh, use. Uh, one was that we wanted the, the uh, treatment of, of social studies to be comprehensive. We wanted wanted to have more U.S. history in the curriculum because we have received feedback over the last three to five years that there was too much history in one class, in one course, in order for it to be covered uh, adequately. So a guiding principle was let's add more U.S. history to the curriculum in kindergarten through grade 12.
8: Now, currently what you're doing to add more history is you're spreading it. Uh, throughout several grades. Is that correct?
2: That's correct. Uh, The initial first draft calls for uh, more U.S. history to be taught at the elementary level, more U.S. history to be taught at the middle school level, and then to have history, uh, U.S. history incorporated into the course Civics and Economics, and then have a U.S. history course. Uh, That was 1.0, and we sent that to teachers to get their feedback about that. And based on the feedback that we have received from teachers and others across North Carolina, uh, we are considering multiple options. Uh, One option is to have U.S. history uh, taught as two different courses, where we would have U.S. history from our beginning as a nation to a year such as 1877 and then to have another U.S. history start at that point. Um, we are looking at that option, and, of course, uh, there are other options available. But what we want to do is to make sure that all of our students graduate from high school with a thorough understanding of U.S. history. And that's important because we know that schools, uh, that many of our students, when they leave public schools, will not take another U.S. history course. I mean, it is not required Um, In many of our colleges and universities, some of our students go directly to the workplace. Some of our students go to the community college. So we know that it's really important for students to have a thorough understanding of history before graduating.
8: Now, don't you think that um, getting students to take history classes earlier in their academic career would actually hinder them in the fact that they wouldn't be able to retain a lot of the information as they uh, became of age of graduating high school or as they were reaching that graduation date? Isn't there a concern there? That uh, by the time that they are graduating, the information that they were taught about early American history has completely left their brain just because it hasn't been studied as in, in as much um, focus, at least later?
2: That is always a concern of us, of ours. Uh, for example, uh, we have that concern in mathematics. We have that concern in science that if you do not use a subject in a meaningful way, then you lose that content. And that is always a balancing act for us in developing curriculum. For example, we could say that a student may not be able to um, retain multiplication table facts. And so would we want to teach them every year? Uh, What we want to do is to um, go beyond just teaching facts and figures. I mean, for example, um, I remember my eighth grade U.S. history class, and that has been a long, long time ago. But I still remember the facts and figures and the bases. I may not remember everything. But what's important is that that we graduate students who understand our heritage and can make connections between what is happening today uh, in our world with that which has been in our past. And sometimes that may not require a student to be able to recall the date of a particular battle, but it would be because you can always Google a battle, but it would require that they have a great understanding and, uh, and can make connections about such things as war, conflict, um, the development of our country.
8: Now, uh, one of the major concerns is that the uh, school systems are teaching more towards these end of year exams instead of giving students uh, a more well-rounded or comprehensive Understanding of the cause and effect reasons right. that would be uh, present if you had a system that uh, had students write essays or something like that. Now, isn't this uh, reason to be concerned that this teachers are just teaching towards the tests?
2: Well, uh, we have heard uh, many uh, concerns expressed about teachers teaching to the test in North Carolina, unlike some other states. Uh, We have the standard course of study that identifies what students should know and be able to do as a result of taking a course. And then the end-of-course test is based on that uh, standard course of study. Having said that, we recognize that it is time for our accountability system, our testing system, to go beyond multiple-choice tests. Uh, I may be able to uh, name all the presidents of the United States, but I may, uh, on a multiple-choice test, but it, that may not reveal what I um, should know about cause and effect or conflict, etc. Uh, that's why the State Board of Education is now developing a new accountability system whereby uh, we can go beyond multiple-choice tests. And one initiative in this, uh, to move toward uh, this area, is our work with a graduation project. Uh, the... State Board of Education has recognized that a student can do a research project, can present that project orally, can defend uh, conclusions, et cetera, through a graduation project. And that was an attempt to move toward a new accountability system and away from just end-of-course multiple-choice tests. Uh, We uh, have had to delay the implementation of the graduation project However, 80% of our high schools in the state do have a graduation project.
8: Now, uh, let's get back on the topic of the writing of this curriculum. Right. Um, One of the concerns or pushbacks is that uh, a lot of the people that were initially involved in writing curriculum didn't have history degrees. Uh, Is that reason to be concerned, especially for those that are uh, focused primarily on this change in the history curriculum?
2: Well, we... That's why we have such a transparent process. that's why we go through multiple revisions. Uh, that's why we ask teachers in the field to give us feedback. in order to write the curriculum, you must start with a framework that would go from kindergarten through grade 12 um, and then that's released. Uh, we we involve uh, many teachers in fact with as we move toward. Uh, 2.0 draft we we are asking and want, we are asking that teachers across the state once they once we release 2.0 to give us feedback so we have the expertise of our teachers in the classroom of professors on university campuses and citizens who are involved in the making of history in our state in fact um, we will have a Writing Advisory Committee that will be made up of, uh, that will be composed comprised of uh, well known people in North Carolina who can look at the the social studies curriculum as a whole. Um, we also give opportunity for anyone to give feedback to the curriculum. One can go to our website. There is a, a mail uh, email address. People can just click on it. And send us the feedback. And the people who do the writing uh, uh, spend hours and hours going over all of the feedback.
8: Now, why do you think there's been such a great pushback from different groups that um, there's going to be less of a uh, broad understanding of U.S. history, especially in the 11th grade?
2: Well, uh, first of all, uh, I don't believe that all people really understood that this was the first draft. So there was a misunderstanding about thinking that the first draft was a final draft. Um, I've worked in curriculum a long time, and we have never, ever had the first draft as a final draft. We go through at least four drafts. So the first was that. The second was uh, reason is that people are uh, interested in what our young people learn about history. And we have people across North Carolina who want to make sure that U.S. history is covered adequately. And then the third reason is that uh, there was a misunderstanding from one of our teachers about where we were in the process. Uh, We sent the first draft to our teachers. Uh, We wanted them to have the first opportunity to give feedback, and we had not released it to the public, not that it was a private or or confidential document. We had just not released it to the public because we value the opinions and the expertise of our teachers, so consequently we wanted to give them the first opportunity as a result. One of our teachers um, notified a news um, a news outlet as if we uh, with the notion that this was the last draft or the final draft of history.
8: do you know who that teacher is? Yes, would you mind saying her name?
2: No, uh, I think that that would be unfair to that teacher. Um, we want to make sure that we continue to have an open dialogue uh, with teachers and others across the state because we do want input. Uh, we do want to make sure that we have the best social studies curriculum in, in the world. And consequently, we don't want to uh, name names. Uh, we want the, our communication links to remain open.
8: So uh, what's the type of feedback that you've been getting from teachers uh, at the very beginning of this process?
2: Okay. Uh, some of the feedback has been that, as I mentioned earlier, that we need to have more uh, social studies, including U.S. history, taught at the elementary and the middle school level. The rationale is that that will allow teachers at the high school level to build on that foundation rather than starting over uh, with um our heritage and our history. Other feedback is that uh, we should, uh, at the high school level, we should have two courses in U.S. history, uh, followed by uh, a civics and economics course at the twelfth grade. Other feedback has been there's not enough time uh, in the social studies cu- curriculum to teach students about all of the the about the world and all of the countries. Um, uh, the other one is another piece of feedback is that in our global economy, in our international uh, world, uh, we need to make sure that our students have a better understanding of the of the world, Asia, Africa, Europe, etc., and that there's not enough room that there's not a, a sufficient attention paid to modern history. Uh, we've heard uh, teachers say. It's so hard for me to get to World War Two, and there's so much after World War II. I'm having difficulty getting through World War II. Um, so that's just some of the feedback that we've received.
8: Now, what do you think uh, some of the problems are that lead teachers to make these uh, statements that it's difficult for them to um, proceed past or uh, at certain periods of time in history?
2: Well, one of the reasons is that history is being made every day. I have a young nephew, and one day I said to him, John Robert, uh, have you had to memorize all the presidents of the United States yet? And he said, no. And I said, well, John, when I was your age, I had to memorize all of the presidents uh, or the names of all the presidents of the United States. And he said, June, remember, there are a lot more presidents now than when you were my age. And that's our dilemma in history. Every day something important happens uh, to add to our history. So how do we just continue to add and add to our history while, I mean, in our instruction, while making sure that we give adequate coverage to our past? So it's a balance between uh, what to teach as far as our past and our present.
8: So what? how are you trying to make that balance right now? I mean, it, it can't be easy in any way, shape, or form. But what are the uh, steps that you're taking to make sure that uh, students are getting a more well-rounded history education.
2: Well, one step is to move away from just uh, covering facts and figures uh, to a curriculum where students can use those facts and figures to see cause and effect, to see the continuum of uh, thorny issues that we've had throughout our uh, throughout our heritage, uh, to use a theme approach while, and use that theme approach uh, while helping students to know facts and figures. We want to uh, help students to go deep into the curriculum so that they can have a, a depth of understanding about why we fought World War II, why there are, what is, why are we having issues in Afghanistan and in the East? They are just some examples.
8: Now, do you think that uh pushing the focus away from pre or history American history pre eighteen seventy seven could cause some initial problems for understanding the cause and effect relationship that the history had uh after eighteen seventy seven?
2: Oh absolutely, and that's why we are um committed to making sure that we have in the curriculum in a thorough manner a history before. 1877.
8: Just a bit earlier in the, right. the child's. Or
2: in the end, I don't know what will happen as the final draft, but in the end, uh, it may be that the writing team, based on feedback, would uh, recommend to the State Board of Education that we have two full courses in U.S. history at the high school level. And that means that uh, there would be some division between those two courses as as to the year we stop the first year and begin the second year uh, that would be one recommendation another option um, uh, would uh, be to make it three courses I don't I don't know but our guiding principle is to make sure that we have adequate coverage of our history before 1877 and after 1877 at the high school level
8: all right well thank you very much for joining me You're today miss uh, Ason of course of she is the superintendent for the public Department of instruction. If I'm getting all the uh, initials right in my head, thank you for joining us.
4: Thank you, Mike. You're listening to I on the Triangle on WKNC 88.1 FM. I'm Seja Hindi. So in this week's VIP, we took a look at the proposal to reform history education in North Carolina in high schools. The proposal recommended that North Carolina history classes focus on post-reconstruction years with earlier years being covered in elementary and middle school. But we definitely still wanted a teacher's opinion on this subject as well. On the phone with us now is history teacher from Broughton High School in Raleigh, Lee Quinn. Hello. Hey, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. Now, I know this proposal is still in the draft stages, and the first one was rejected last week with another to, I guess, come out or be posted online in April, but what did you think about the initial proposal?
9: Uh, We were all sort of uh, incredulous, to be honest, about the initial proposal. Um, We just really thought that it was uh, they, they couldn't be serious, you know, that United States history uh, to be taught in high school would only uh, cover the period since Reconstruction. So it took a while for it to think in that they were actually serious, uh, honestly, with this draft, and uh, immediately we all sort of shifted into what can we do, uh, how can we make our voices heard, and spread the spread this information to make sure that it doesn't come into to play as the actual curriculum down the road.
4: Right. And what kinds of things did you guys do to kind of voice your concerns about it?
9: Well, our local district here in Raleigh had some uh, some sessions where teachers and staff could go and have their feedback heard and sort of give our voice to representatives. Our department chair, some other representatives, went and to these centralized meetings, and folks were there from the county and folks were there from DPI to sort of hear our concerns. We also had emails. Um, both to the district and to the state DPI as well. So um, we pretty quickly had lots of opportunities and outlets that we took full advantage of to make sure that uh, our displeasure
4: was voiced. Right. So now there are two different proposals on the table, um, and both include having two separate U.S. history courses, one from the pre-Columbian era to 1877 and the second from 1877 to present. Um, According to News & Observer, actually one option was that both Classes would be required in high school, and under the second, the recent, the more recent history course would be required in high school, and then local school districts would decide when to offer the other. How do you feel about that proposal?
9: I think it's, it's better, certainly, than the <clears throat> initial proposal. I, I do feel like studying only United States history since reconstruction without a background in everything to that point uh, is sort of an empty exercise in a lot of ways. It sort of can devolve into... The current events, almost, and so <clears throat> I'm an advocate of requiring both. As was mentioned earlier by the professor, you know, all the other core subjects require a full four years of participation and successful completion by students. And I certainly advocate uh, teaching both courses. I'm a, I'm a big fan, actually, of offering uh, both in that division. I think is a, is a sensible division to make, to so where students would take uh, pre-Columbian history up through the, the end of Reconstruction. one year and then (laughs) ever since reconstruction the second year, but I would would certainly advocate taking both of those. I suppose um, giving local districts the option to require a fourth course would be okay, but really that's already the way that it is. Local districts can choose to put graduation requirements over and above what the state DPI uh, puts in place. So that really isn't a whole lot different. Uh, Local districts still have that prerogative if they want to. So I would certainly advocate for requiring both courses of U.S. history in addition to Uh, civics and world history as graduation requirements.
4: So I'm not sure if you teach any AP classes, but the AP curriculum is completely different, right? How is that, or how is this new change going to affect AP teaching style as well?
9: I don't teach AP, but I'm aware of AP. I took AP way back when, and I teach International Baccalaureate American History, so it's another uh, sort of curriculum. In reality, it wouldn't change that curriculum because students who would take that course would already cover... Uh, the required curriculum objectives, ostensibly in this future uh, draft of history. The AP curriculum does cover pre-Columbian to modern times. So I would I would not imagine that the, the teaching in those classes would be any different than it would be today. Okay.
4: Was there any initial support for the proposal from other teachers at the school?
9: In my experience, I heard the only degree or, or even instance of support I heard was they, some, some of my colleagues in a minority appreciated that there was a thematic view in the actual nuts and bolts of the curriculum with the objectives and the learning goals put in there. They are sort of articulated uh, thematically, and I point that out to say that you know my grandmother always told me to say something nice. If I couldn't say anything at all, so, but it was sort of the, the only positive I even can recall hearing either among my colleagues or colleagues around the state about the curriculum. But I say that to say that's the sole uh, positive I heard from any teaching professional about the proposed curriculum.
4: Okay, that sounds good. Do you have anything else you'd like to add?
9: I would just encourage those who are in positions to make this curriculum change meaningful and make this curriculum rewrite uh, something that is authentic for North Carolina students to really consider requiring uh, a two-year course, as was outlined earlier, and Bringing up the graduation requirements to four years, the DPI in the past has been uh, loath to do that in history and has left that option up into local districts, which is a different animal, of course. But I would just encourage those who are writing the curriculum to uh, to really take a look at what would what would consist of an authentic teaching of American history, and how certainly I believe, and most of my colleagues believe, uh, that cannot be done without an understanding of United States uh, origins. And history up until, uh, and of course, after Reconstruction. So, any of those who are in the position, it is quite a small number of people to make those decisions stick, uh, they would just prioritize the authentic teaching of United States history to be thorough and and certainly from beginning to present.
4: Okay, well, thank you so much for joining us again.
9: Sure, it's my pleasure.
4: For all those listeners, uh, make sure to check out Eye on the Triangle's blog for more on this topic in April. And now, on to Community Canvas.
10: Community Canvas on Eye on the Triangle.
2: Your local arts news.
10: This Wednesday, the third day in March, Raleigh's Lincoln Theater is expecting a full house. Not to rock out to some favorite tribute bands or catch that national headliner, but to listen to friends and neighbors deliver five-minute presentations on topics they are passionate about. Wednesday night, starting at 7 o'clock, the Lincoln is hosting the second Ignite Raleigh event. Ryan Boyles, one of the local organizers, was kind enough to explain how the presentations work
11: they're essentially giving uh, given 5 minutes on stage to present any topic they choose and they have 20 slides that they show on a screen and they are automatically rotated every 15 seconds so it's sort of like a lightning talk where you know you can't stop and you've got 5 minutes to get your message across and share something that's either really cool, really big or really, you know, um, inane, it could be anything under the sun
10: Ignite Rally 2 is being synchronized to be part of the first Ignite Global Week. From tonight, Monday, March the 1st, through this Friday, March 5th, beer-slinging lounges are amongst six of the seven continents will be hosting blitz-round presentations on everything from zombies here at the rally event to the robot takeover of the Internet over in Beijing. Event founder Brady Forrest talks about the genesis of the Ignite series in the rainy city of Jimi Hendrix's birth, Seattle, Washington. We just
12: wanted to have... Evening geek event where people could get together and share their ideas. Uh, we've both been involved in planning other events around the city, and you know, there's a common geek movement called a camp where people get together and there's an open schedule, and you're able to uh, say, you know, I'm going to talk about Twitter for an hour. I'm going to talk about Facebook for an hour. I'm going to talk about my new company for an hour. And it seemed to me that you could get more of a turnout if you did it at night, you did it at a bar, and you could still put out the open call, but you had total control over how long the person spoke so that, you know, you're going to see 16 talks, and then you get to go home. Like, you get 16 great ideas, and then there's, you can hang out and have a beer with, with your friends. When we first started in Seattle, we had about 200 people show up. We now get about 700 people. And growth has been similar. Ignite Bend was last night, and they expected 400 people. Bend is a small town in Oregon.
10: With interest high and time finite, one of the challenges faced by the Raleigh group was selecting who would be allowed to present. To answer this challenge, they created an online community at igniterally.com where users could vote on the topics they wanted to see covered. 3,860 votes later, 11 topics were chosen. So what are they going to be talking about Friday night?
11: The topics are ranging anywhere from um, a redneck guide to Silicon Valley to why women women should take up boxing to things like what happens to your digital identity after you die.
10: In addition to the submitted pitches, the group also solicited headliners. Ryan Boyles discusses a little bit about what we can expect from them.
11: Right. Um, we wanted to feature headline speakers, which are people that we approached that, um, you know, maybe they didn't know about the Ignite uh, concept or the events. And we wanted to have folks that had. Um, you know, some sort of a mainstream appeal, but yet still had a, a good message or some some good idea to share. So we approached and got um, several really good speakers this time. We have um, Elizabeth Gardner from uh, WRAL, who's the weather lady there. She's going to do a talk. We also have Henry Copeland, who is a prominent um, businessman in Carborough, who is the founder of BlogAds.com. So. We have, we have a span of speakers. Um, we also just re- recently announced that um, Miss North Carolina is going to be a speaker, which is, which is really exciting because it's, it's interesting when you see the range of speakers. You've got everything from Miss North Carolina on down to, you know, there's several women speakers who are talking about a variety of subjects, like, you know, like I said, boxing. And um, there's another um, speaker, Charlotte Moore, who's going to talk about why it's important to, you know, have self-confidence and be a nerd girl.
10: Brady Forrest explains what steers the Ignite series from being a PT Barnum bamboozle fest or a stereotypical slideshow vacation presentation you can't escape from. It's things that would interest the geek community. So
12: that means you know you can cover any topic, right? But you have to you know provide some background data for it. You have to like explain why you're saying X, Y, and Z. The crowd won't just accept it. One of the most popular talks out there is how to buy a car, and this person kind of laid out uh, negotiation tactics and exactly how the system in his eyes worked. You know, there's the master salesperson at the end who tries to get you to buy the special insurance. Um, there is a guy called, who wrote a talk called Hacking the Technical Interview, where he talks about you know, breath-matching and using NLP to kind of form a bond with his interviewer. A woman who's an architect did a talk on the old pneumatic tube system of London in the 1880s, and that which used to be kind of like the first internet in a lot of ways. You know, uh, lovers would send perfumed notes across town four, or five, six times a day, just like email or or SMS.
10: Brady goes on to discuss the Ignite series as part of the art world.
12: Definitely perf- performance art, which you can, then yes, uh, we ha- actually have an artist in residence uh, in Seattle. There's a local fellow who's a friend of mine who works for Rhapsody. He's also um, a writer and an actor and director in a local theater group, and so he will write, you know, pieces that are almost plays uh, or one-man soliloquies for his talks. And he can, it's you know, he, he views the constraints as the challenge. And so he doesn't try to bend the rules. He, he goes, he fits within them perfectly and then flips them on their head.
10: Another component of the Ignite series is focusing on building strong communities, from helping you nurture ideas to the virtual world to creating opportunities to support charities. Ryan explains how this played a part in moving the Raleigh event to be coordinated with the global series.
11: There's an opportunity to give something back to the community with this. That's part of the Global Ignite platform. Um, part of the reason they're doing the Global Ignite Week is to, to give a bigger voice to um, the charitable cause. Um, one of the sponsors of the Global Ignite Week is uh, Donors DonorsChoose. Um, you can go check out their website. And basically that's a, a place for you to go and you pick an education project. In your community, so you're giving um, either assistance or funds directly to a school system or a teacher in need that's indirectly directly you know down the street from you. So we're going to be posting details um, before the event for folks to be able to pick charities from either Wake County, Durham County, Orange County, all the surrounding uh, school systems to give some donation back because Ignite is a totally free event. It's all sponsor driven. So we really, you know, if you come out, you have a good time um, and you enjoy it. We just want you to, you know, give something back if you're able to.
10: The flow of ideas doesn't end with the Lincoln Theater. On March 8th, a follow-up event is being hosted at the Six Plates Wine Bar in Durham, where 15 people not voted to present at the Lincoln Theater will be given their chance to have their five minutes, along with a crooning of red colors, Jay Kuchma, in an event known as Fizzled Durham. The Lincoln Theater is expected to be filled to capacity on Wednesday night from 7 o'clock till 9. So if you desire to attend Ignite Rally, you are encouraged to RSVP at igniterally.com. This has been Community Canvas on Eye on the Triangle.
3: People ready to feed the mass, ready to teach the class, ready to beat some ass. Read-o, if you want it, let me hear it. If you feel it, let me near it. If you make it, let me wear it. If you got it, let me share it. Helping you see through the fog. Phenomenal product of
0: music and God. Oh, no, shake Soundbites on Eye on the Triangle.
10: Opinions from around NC State and the rest of the Triangle.
0: This is Chris Chaffee for Eye on the Triangle. Since the beginning of 2010, our world has seen two severe earthquakes in Haiti and Chile that have destroyed infrastructure and disrupted the lives of their citizens. The 2010 Haiti earthquake measured a 7.0 on the Richter magnitude scale and its epicenter was 25 kilometers or 16 miles west of Port-au-Prince, Haiti's capital. The earthquake occurred on Tuesday, January 12th, and by January 24th, there had been at least... 52 aftershocks, measuring 4.5 or greater. As of February 14th, an estimated 3 million people were affected by the quake, and the Haitian government reports that between 217,000 and 230,000 people have been identified as dead. An estimated 300,000 have been injured, and an estimated 1 million are now homeless. This Saturday, February 24th, the people of Chile were subjected to an early morning earthquake. The nation's president estimates that 2 million people have been in some way affected by this quake. More than 300 people have been killed, according to Chile's Office of Emergency Management, and 15 are still missing. The 8.8 magnitude quake has not equaled the type of damage seen in Haiti because while the damage has not been as extensive in Chile as in Haiti, the damage in Chile has still been widespread. A 15-story high-rise near the southern city of Concepcion has collapsed. The country's major North Highway has been severed at multiple points, and Santiago, the capital, has lost electricity and basic services, including water and telephone. In light of these two tragedies, this week's Soundbites has been dedicated to asking people on campus whether they are helping with the relief efforts for these disasters and how they are helping. They were also asked what they think NC State's role should be in the aftermath of these types of disasters.
3: Alexander Michael Lazinski, Materials Science Engineering, freshman. I personally don't donate to any particular cause individually. I certainly support the efforts, but I think it's best when money's pooled together, much the way the American Red Cross does and various large religious institutions. And I just prefer to see it handled responsibly. As what a, we could do as a university, again, we're a very large group. When great numbers of people get together, there are things like food drives which could take place. Also, the benefit concert for Haiti, I hear, was quite successful. Perhaps something like that could, again, be done for a relief of those in Chile.
4: Brittany? And I'm a psychology major. Um, I'm not currently involved in any of the Haiti relief, but I think the NC State should do a t-shirt drive and collect everybody's old t-shirts and send them to Haiti for relief efforts.
5: My name is Iyad. I am a post-doctorate uh, at the Nuclear Engineering Department. I just came uh, recently to United States like two, three weeks ago. Before that, when I was in uh, in Jordan, we uh, donate for people from Haiti. We got invitations from the mosque. So uh, after uh, we have a big gathering each Friday, they invite us to donate for uh, people. Similarly here, I, I am assuming mosque, church, and other places will help. For NC State, I think each department should uh, has its on the program.
8: My name is Matt Gromlik. I am a plant biology and chemistry major at NC State. My organization is NRHH. We've talked a lot about doing different things with the residence halls. We talked about a penny war between the different buildings on campus but definitely just getting the residence halls involved, whether it's informational sessions. I think what we've done so far has been great. Raising money, r- 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 uh, raising awareness, having benefit concert that we did have. It was great to get people involved. We sent some people over there, like Justine from the JLBT Center went. So we've provided like personal relief as well as monetary relief
3: that's good.
4: My name is Sarah Center. I'm a sophomore in science education and so far for Howell for Haiti I've just donated my money and time, bought the shirts and the ribbons and all that and I think NC State really should be helping out. So far we've raised over $60,000 which is a lot of money more than most schools and I think it's our duty to help out other places.
0: This has been Chris Chaffee for Sound Bites on Eye on the Triangle.
4: And that wraps up another episode of Eye on the Triangle on WKNC 88.1. Make sure to check out the blog at wknc.org slash blog for the online exclusive Wolfpacker of the Week and for the podcast. As always, email us at publicaffairs at wknc.org for...